leading a song to finishing his nursing course and now is a qualified nurse. Let's give it up for Ben, for Will. Awesome. All right. Well, can you believe it's the end of February? My goodness. <laughs> That's news to, to Doug. It's the end of February. Um, but God has already done so much and, and I'm just excited for this year. I'm really excited for this year. And we're wrapping up our theme, We the Church, which has been an awesome theme. And tonight, tonight, this morning, I'd love for you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. In the first chapter, we're setting up, we're setting up Samuel. It's the first chapter, and uh, Samuel was a prophet among God's people, um, and he was an amazing prophet. But what we read about is, in this chapter, is that things were not going so great, um, Eli, who was a great priest, a great high priest and a great prophet, um, started to lose his spiritual edge and he had sons who were not doing so great and taking advantage of their position in the church, which speaks to me a lot about leadership. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about how God brings up this young man named Samuel. And, um, and so I just want to share with you this morning um, on the topic bigger than me and I want to ask you whether you trust God. I want to ask you how big your dream is. I want to ask you what are the things you're crying out for. And so we read here about um, how Samuel was born and how God chose him. And so I just want you to read it with me on the screen and then we'll get into it. Chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man who lived in Ramathane and he was a descendant from the Zuf family in the Ephraim Hills and his name was Elkanah. Can you say Elkanah? He had two wives, busy guy. The first was Hannah, say Hannah. The second one was Penina, say Penina. Penina had children, Hannah did not. Every year, this man went from his hometown up to Shiloh to worship and offer a sacrifice to God of the angel armies. Eli, who was the priest, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, served as the priests of God there. When Elkanah sacrificed, he passed helpings of the sacrificial meal around to his wife Penina and all her children, but he always gave an especially generous helping to Hannah because he loved her so much and because God had not given her children. But her rival wife taunted her cruelly, rubbing it in and never letting her forget that God had not given her children. This went on year after year, Every time she went to the sanctuary of God, she could expect to be taunted. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. The place where you come to worship can sometimes be a place of pain. Hannah was reduced to tears and had no appetite. Her husband, Elkanah, said, Hannah, why are you crying? Why aren't you eating? Why are you so upset? Am I not of more worth to you than 10 sons? That's a guy with a really good self-esteem. <laughs> and all the men know what that's like. You guys are so good with your self-esteem. Verse 9, and here's a key for all of us when we're feeling low. Here's three keys. So, Hannah ate, pulled herself together, and went to the house of the Lord. I could just finish right there. Okay, if we all just did that in our hard times, we would be amazed at what those three resolves are. You know what? Just look after yourself, pull yourself together, 
and go to the house of the Lord. Look after yourself, pull yourself together, and go to the house of the Lord. Amazing, but that's not what I'm preaching on. The priest Eli was on duty at the entrance of God's temple in the customary seat. Crushed in soul, Hannah prayed to God and cried and cried inconsolably. Then she made a vow. O God of the angel armies, if you'll take a good hard look at my pain, if you'll quit neglecting me and go into action for me by giving me a son, I'll give him completely unreservedly to you. I'll set him apart for a life of holy discipline. It so happened that as she continued in prayer before God, Eli was watching her closely. Hannah was praying in her heart silently. Her lips moved, but no sound was heard. Was heard. Eli jumped to the conclusion that she was drunk. He approached her and said, You're drunk. How long do you plan to keep this up? Sober up, woman. <laughs> Hannah said, No, sir, please. I'm a woman hard used. I haven't been drinking, not a drop of wine or beer. The only thing I've been pouring out is my heart, pouring it out to God. Don't for a minute think I'm a bad woman. It's because I'm so desperately unhappy and in such pain that I've stayed here so long. Eli answered her, go in peace and may the God of Israel give you what you have asked for him. Think well of me and pray for me, she said, and she went her way. She ate heartily and her face was radiant. Up before dawn, they worshipped God and returned home to Ramah. Elkanah slept with his wife, Hannah, and, they, and God began making the necessary arrangements in response to what she had asked. Before the year was out, Hannah had conceived and given birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I asked God for him. Then the next time they came around to going to the temple, Hannah said, you know, I'm just going to stay with the baby. I'm going to wean him. And when he's ready, I'll bring him and devote him to God. And so in verse 25, first they butchered the bull, then brought the child to Eli. Some say he might have been like three years old, very young. Hannah said, excuse me, sir, would you believe that I am the very woman who was standing before you in this very spot, praying to God? I prayed for this child and God gave me what I asked for. Now I have dedicated him to God. He's dedicated to God for life. And there they worshiped God. Amazing story. You know, I want to ask you, have you ever had to resist resistance? Has there ever been a time in your life where you have felt, full, felt the full force of resistance coming against you and you've had to brace yourself and face it back? And you're resisting the resistance. It's a powerful spiritual posture, actually to not be so overcome and blown over, but to actually lean into resistance and come back at it with, the, with an opposing force. Have you ever had to do that? Resist the resistance. I remember um, a couple of years ago for my birthday, uh, a few of my friends got together and paid for me to go skydiving. It was awesome. It was so good. So they told me after they'd paid... And they also paid for us to have a night away the night before. It was at the Gold Coast at Coolangatta. And so we stayed at the Gold Coast right in the heart of surfers, only about, I don't know, maybe it was the fourth floor of the Hilton. And it was above all of the nightlife. And so it's thumping music all night. So we didn't sleep at all. And so we, then we got up at about 5 a.m. because we had to be down at the spot at like 6 a.m., and so we're tired and we get there and Alicia went up with me. And so Alicia's like this massive sanguine personality. I mean, I'm sure you've all noticed her. 
You don't even have to know her to notice her in a room. She has the loudest laugh and the biggest gestures. So she's this personality that's like, <laughs> she's like, this is going to be awesome the whole time for weeks. She was so pumped. And I'm like, yep, yep, it's going to be great. I was excited, but I was like processing internally. I was getting myself excited internally. I was a little bit more quiet about it than Alicia. So for weeks, she's pumped. She's telling everyone we're going. We get there. Then we get to um, the skydiving office, and we're strapping things on and, and going through the thing. She's still excited. I'm still quiet. Then we go out the back and um, get in this little rickety van that takes us to the um, airport, the Coolangatta Airport, where we get on this plane that is held together with gaff tape. She's still pumped, I'm still quiet. And so we're going up in the plane and it had to go higher and, and like I could hear the engine rattling. I could see the gaff tape flapping around inside the cabin. She's still pumped, I'm still quiet. And I said, I announced to everyone in the cabin, I don't know how many couples there were, there might have been about five other people jumping. We all have someone jumping with us, someone who knows what they're doing. Thank you, Jesus. And I announced to everyone, I have to go first. I'm not jumping out after anyone. I'm jumping out first. I don't think I could jump after someone had jumped. So they're all like, okay, you can go first, go first. And so I remember the worst part of the whole experience is when we're sitting on the edge with our legs out the door and there's just ocean. And it felt like an eternity. And we're watching this little light blink, and it's a red light. And when it goes green, we're meant to jump. And at that point, I'm really glad that I have a guy behind me, because I wouldn't have jumped. I would have just gone, yeah, it's gone green. I'm not going. <laughs> but he pushes. He pushes, and you're free-falling for 45 seconds. And 45 seconds, when you're falling at that speed, feels like an eternity, and the violence, everyone's like, what's it like? And I'm like, the only word I have for that 45 seconds is violent. It is so violent. The opposing force is so strong. I mean, you've seen the videos of people's faces that look like flags <laughs> because the cheeks are flapping and like, honestly, like tears and like saliva, it's all coming against you like this. And they said to me, and I don't know whether it's just, you know, for fun. But my instructor said, if you scream, it helps you breathe. Because if you don't scream, the opposing velocity can take your breath away. And I was like, you're just saying that because, you know, like you do this five times a day and it gets boring and you just want to hear someone <laughs> scream. And anyway, when I jumped out, it was true. It was like, <gasps> everything is coming against you. And so then, because I hadn't started screaming once I got into the jump, it was really hard to get my voice out because it was so strong coming against me. Eventually, once I got that first breath out and kept screaming, it kept going. And then after 45 seconds, they pulled the, the um, parachute and it worked. And all of a sudden, it's quiet. Isn't it, it's just amazing. And then he's pointing out, like, there's the New South Wales border, and there's that, and there's, it was just the most amazing, amazing experience. 
and we hit the sand very ungraciously. Um, and then afterwards, Alicia came after me. I have some photos, actually. So that's my parachute. I was red. Have we got another one with yellow in the background? Maybe not. I don't know what I sent through late last night. But there we are. There's um, Alicia and I and our instructors. And the next one, this is Alicia's beautiful Thai skin with a few shades of green. Because at that point, we swapped. And I was like, that was amazing. Let's do that again. I could do that over and over and over again. And she's like... She literally went green. I've never seen Alicia quiet. I've never seen her green. And she was like, oh, that was the worst thing I've ever done. I'm like, that was the best thing I've ever done. You can ask her. I rang my kids and I'm like, if you want to do this, I'll do this with you. This is the best experience ever. I'm sure my kids are going, she's lost it. Honestly, you should all jump out of a plane. Is amazing. Anyone else been skydiving? Yes. Would you? Did you love it? No. Who loved it? Yes. It's about half half. 50-50. Just take the risk. Who knows? It was awesome. <laughs> I will do it again. I think I'll force each of my children to do it. It was awesome. So good. So now I've talked to Gustav. I want to go um, shark cage diving in South Africa. Apparently, South Australia is a bit lame, so I'm going to do it in South Africa. But um, it was awesome. But you know, it, this whole thing of resisting the resistance when it's all coming against you at full force, and sometimes it feels violent. Life feels violent. Sometimes it feels like you're free-falling. It feels like it's going for a really long time. You're out of control. You feel like you're doing really unattractive saliva things and tears. And, you know, and we can joke about it, but really life can feel like it's out of control and coming against us at the speed of God knows what. And we have to resist the resistance if we're going to breathe. And we actually have to lean into it if we're going to breathe. And I, so I just want to ask you that question, have you ever had to do that? I want to talk to you this morning about the desires of your heart because when we name them, often all hell breaks loose around us. And the resistance that comes against a people of God who are standing for the things of God is quite amazing. It's quite amazing. And so I want to ask you, what are those things you're crying out to God about? What are the things that you're finding resistance with, like Hannah, for many, many years? For many years, the resistance to the deepest cry and yearning of her heart. I want to ask you, what are you crying out to God for? And some of us have actually stopped crying out to God about it because the resistance has been so strong and painful. We've actually stopped even asking. We've backed right away. But today I want to maybe stir your heart again. And I want to be maybe a little bit idealistic with you. Is that okay? Is it too much for me to be a little bit idealistic and challenge you to believe again, to dream again? Is it a bit too idealistic of me to be that young pastor that says, get off your backside and go again? 
believe God again. Stretch yourself again. And so just two things as I looked at the life of Hannah, and there is so much that I could pull out of this, so, so much that we could all learn from Hannah, but just two things this morning that I believe will help us step into that peaceful zone, step through the resistance and get to that place of seeing the victory, seeing the miracle. And the first one that I loved is the devotion around her life. So simple and yet we can complicate it and we can make it religious or we can throw it out altogether. But her devotion stirs me and her devotion challenges me. And there are two things that I noticed straight away just as I was meditating on this and two things that I think lent themselves to her purity and devotion is her relationship, her relationship with Elkanah. I always find it interesting what God chose to put in the Bible and add in, you know, and what he chose to leave out. You know, sometimes we read it and go, there's massive gaps there. I wish God would fill in those gaps. And then there are other things that are in there and you're like, why is that in there? So I'm wondering why did the author have to tell us that Elkanah loved Hannah more than the other wife? And I realized this thought God was stirring in me is that here we have a couple who are in agreement. And in those days, marriage was done purely out of convenience. In those days, they had several, men could have several wives and they were married to him out of convenience. But for some reason, the author tells us he actually loved Hannah. And that was unusual for those days. It really was unusual because marriage was just a transaction. And we live kind of in a similar setting today. It is or it can be unusual to see couples in agreement. It can be unusual to see a man and a woman in agreement with God and with each other. And I just loved actually the simplicity of her relationship with God and with her husband. And so that was the first thing that spoke to me was this purity that they had there. The second thing was that she wasn't given to wine. Sam and I don't drink. We have friends who do drink. But there are lots of other things, and and that's okay. But there are lots of other things in our generation that become like crutches, and they become like distractions, and we use them as Band-Aid solutions to our pain. There are lots of things that actually muddy up our purity, because we use them as placebos and counterfeits for just a purity and a devotion to God. Everything you need in your difficult moment is found in the presence of God. You don't need to medicate it. You don't need to distract yourself. You just have to be in devotion to God. And so I was looking at Hannah's purity and the way that she lived her life in that holiness and God was speaking to me about holiness in our lives as a church and I pray that you'll hear my heart is that this isn't the sort of holiness that's self-righteous that struts around and passes judgment on others it's the sort of holiness that stands alone in an unholy culture it's the sort of holiness that is fierce about its holiness and that can stand in a culture and say, I'm turning the tides, and I'm being the presence of God in this place. 
the holiness of God's people will turn the tide of culture. There is no rival for holiness. There is no other way about it. The only way to usher in the presence of God into a generation like Hannah ushered in a new prophet is to live a life that is resolutely holy. And we do it and we stand in the midst of chaos and we stand in the midst of opposition. And I know that you go into workplaces that are challenging. I know that you face a culture every day just like I do that is opposed to the things of God and is unholy. And God's saying, you're my man. You're my woman. Will you be fierce about your holiness so that you can stand? So that you can be the resistance to the resistance. And so I love this idea that as a church, as the sons and daughters of God, we can be fierce about our purity. And we can stop allowing all the murk and the mud and the dirt and the distraction and the counterfeit versions of satisfaction to water down and lessen our holiness. How we speak, how we conduct ourselves, how we respond, all those things. You know what, when we're in a devoted relationship, in relationship with God, we don't have to try to be holy. It's an outflow. It's an outflow. And so the first thing that I saw was her devotion, her simplicity to be set apart, to be devoted, a holy incubator of the things of God, an untainted lover of his kingdom, desperate to see his goodness, the kind of devotion that attracts heaven and shifts things on earth. The second thing about her devotion is her worship, her worship. And there is something so beautiful about a broken, pure heart worshiping God. You don't, it's like saying, I'll go to the gym when I lose some weight. Is the same as, you know what, I'll come to church when I've got my life sorted. Or I'll come to God when I'm a little bit more squeaky clean. It's like when I used to have a cleaner, the morning that the cleaner came, I would clean. <laughs> Sam would be like, we're paying someone to do this. But that's how we can be, is we can complicate it. And it's okay to be broken in the presence of God. It's okay to be real in the presence of God. But the point is that she did it year after year after year after year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year, season after season. She did it before the miracle. She kept doing it after the miracle. And you know what? There are a lot of people I know who I've laid hands on and prayed for and they've received healing and walked out the door and never come back. And then there are young adults that I meet all the time who are serving in every department of the church because that's a really, really great idea if you want to meet a godly partner. <laughs> Tip, okay? But what happens is then they meet that person and then they sit down with us and they say, you know, we're just going to work on our relationship and so we're just going to pull back from everything. I'm like, how stupid can you be? I wish I could say that. If you ever say that to me, that's what I'm thinking in my head. <laughs> Talk about forgetting the goodness of God that got you into the season. Talk about, I mean, the start of your undoing. And the thing I loved about her is just her consistency of worship in and out of season, regardless of season. 
an agreement with her husband in doing that, in and out of season, in and out of season, her worship, in and out of season. Because there are going to be times where your life is screaming at you and it's saying, no, don't worry about that. I know you haven't been for three weeks, but it's okay. You don't need to be a Christian to go to church. That's true. Thinking that is just like thinking I can become a Big Mac by sitting in McDonald's. It's true. You don't need to come to church to be a Christian. That is absolutely true, except that all through the Bible and in the New Testament, it says, don't forsake the gathering of the saints. This is the place where we rally together. This is where we gain strength. This is where we express our gratitude. This is where we encourage each other. This is where we build ourselves and each other up. You don't know what a blessing you could be in your brokenness to someone sitting next to you on a Sunday. You don't know what answers are found in this place. Sitting alone in your brokenness won't do you any favors at all. At all. Week in, week out. Year in, year out. And you know, often we can go, well, it looks good for them. They've got it all together. The grass is never greener anywhere else. Let me assure you of that. Let me assure you of that. (laughs) But some of us, and many of us here have chosen to make that resolve. Year in, year out. Year in, year out. And the, the agreement that we can have with each other and with the Spirit of God. This morning, singing, our God is an awesome God. Did your spirit agree with that? Yeah. What are you agreeing with in your worship? You don't get to choose whether you worship or not. We will all worship. You just choose what you'll worship. We're all designed to worship. We just choose what we worship. And worship is what you choose to agree with and what you choose to give honor to. And so this morning when Sam got up here and said, our God is an awesome God, I was craving to hear a church go, yes, in agreement. Yes, he is good. No matter what you've just walked out of and locked the front door on, yes, he's good. And I choose to agree with that because that's worship. Worship is because otherwise, if you don't agree, you're agreeing with something else. And you're worshiping something else. And we need to choose who we agree with in our lives and who we agree with in the spirit. What is the word you're agreeing with in your worship over your circumstance? We need to choose what we worship. And remember that God is good in the bad, and in the good, in prayer and in thanks, before the miracle and after the miracle. So the first thing I loved about Hannah's life, and I've read this so many times, but these are just the two things that came out for me this time, was her devotion, her simplicity of devotion. It is so simple and it is so beautiful. And that is part of yelling when the opposing force is so strong. A life of simple devotion that isn't blown backwards, but is leaning in strategically, intentionally. And the second thing, and this is really what I believe God has stirred for us today. First thing out of her life about how to lean in is a life of devotion. The second thing is a revelation on influence. Here's the thing. For years, Hannah prayed for a son. She wanted a son. 
all the while, God was waiting for a national leader. She saw her household. He saw a nation. Is your dream big enough? Is your dream big enough? I feel that often we can bring our prayers to God and they will satisfy our household. And God's going, I'm really bored of this conversation. I'm really bored of this conversation. And I've realized that until our desires become greater than ourselves, the cosmic conversation is really quite dull. And we wonder, why is God not breaking through for me? I've prayed and prayed and prayed. It's because your prayer is too small. Because God doesn't want to bless you for you. He wants to bless you for everyone around you. He wants to bless you, catch this, for a nation. He wants to bless you for the nations. And you're looking at me now going, now calm down. Calm down, once bitten, twice shy. It's easy for you to say, I'm not meant to look. No, no, no. The church, God's sons and daughters, are alive and well for the purpose of influencing nations. For the purpose of changing culture. That is the purpose of our lives. Yes, we pray for our husbands and wives and our children to find Jesus so that there is greater influence. It doesn't stop at our front door. It starts there. It starts there. And I'm desperate to see a church rise up that takes this on and says, yes, I'm a mum with small children, but that doesn't excuse me from the commission. Yes, I'm a business person that has a full schedule, but actually that has positioned me for the commission. I'm desperate to see young people, which is why I'm so excited about our young adults and our youth and our children's department. I'm desperate to whisper into their spiritual ears, you can change the world. And in fact, you should, because that is God's design. I'm desperate to see, I'm desperate to see young people believe that they should go on to university and get qualified and take positions of influence. I'm desperate to see young adults who are not moved by popular culture, but will turn popular culture. I'm desperate to see children getting dreams of leadership on the inside of their hearts because that is the call of God for every Christian. Is your prayer big enough? What have you put to bed because it was too big and it didn't happen? Go back. Wake it. Wake it. Resist the resistance. If you need to get educated and trained, do it. If you need to raise funds, do it. If you need to take things off your life, do it. Whatever it is, make sure that your dream is bigger than just your little world. She just wanted a son. He wanted a national leader. And it wasn't until her prayer changed that she got her miracle. It wasn't until her vision expanded that she saw the miracle. So I believe God is stirring us. He's stirring us. 
And I believe he's watching and he's saying, you know what, church, stir yourselves, rise up, be the difference, be my lighthouse, be my presence, be what I need you to be in this world. We are his expression in the earth. We are his expression. It's us. It's us. And we can go, oh, shame on the world for all these things that are coming in. But unless we actually step in, it's not going to change. We can pray and pray and pray, but we need to step in. We need to step in. If you're not thinking of the next generation, then the cosmic conversation is over. And my perspective has to align with heaven's perspective. What does he want for your life? National influence, international influence, generational influence. Do you need to improve, young person, your grades at school? So that's possible. Do you need to give up some of the poor influences in your life that are dulling you down? Do you need to apply some self-discipline to cultivate holiness in your life? What is it? What is it that'll take you into the things of God? Dream bigger. Why don't we bow our heads this morning? The thing is, Hannah, Hannah gave birth to Samuel. She handed him over to the priests and they raised him in the temple. But she went back year after year and kept worshipping. And when she went back year after year, she actually brought Samuel a new coat each year as he got older, a bigger coat each year. And what I love is that he then became the amazing prophet we know. He anointed David. He led kings. He counseled kings and he ushered in the voice of God, which had been silent for a long time. Hannah had an unwavering commitment before and after her miracle and a nation was turned around. I wonder what could be said of us in Brisbane if we had that sort of commitment. If we lent into the resistance, if we lived lives of devotion and understood the call of influence on our lives and boldly stepped in to that in obedience, obedience. I wonder what could be said of this generation if if the church rise, rise up and did that. You know what, church, I'd love for you to stand to your feet and just in this moment, let's pray. I want for you, I want for you to almost like cup that dream in your hands and raise it to God and just start praying over it out loud. Right now, I just want to say in this moment, there's no such thing as a quiet prayer. Why don't you just start start talking to God about that, that desire that's on your heart. What do you see? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for dreams. Thank you for visions. Thank you for visions, Lord. Father, thank you, Lord God, that you're stirring up.